0: Lord, we praise You for this life that comes through death. We praise You for the sacrifice of Christ and for the message that we have sung together in these songs. We praise You for what Your Word reveals and we pray now that by the Spirit You will take the living Word of God and plant it into our hearts and allow us to grow in the light of what You have revealed. For those who know not Christ, I pray that you would create, even in this time together, a taste for who Jesus is and for the wonder of the salvation that is in Him, the freedom of conscience, the forgiveness of sin, the hope of eternity. I pray that you would take the Word and allow it to have free course in hearts still bound in self and sin. For those of us who know you, we praise you, not because of what we have done, but because of your mercy you have saved us. And I pray that we would deepen and grow in a text that we have considered before and even recently, but in a text that we need to remember over and again as we live out our lives in this broken and fallen world and as we deal with the presence of sin in our life and surrounding us. Guide us in this time, meet with us here, and do a great work in our hearts. Through Christ we pray, and for His honor. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like you to picture two toddlers, twins, a boy and a girl, growing up in a stable and loving home. They're too young to understand, let alone to find comfort and joy in most of the blessings that surround them. They have no idea the cost and the effort that goes into purchasing and maintaining a house, the home in which they live. They cannot appreciate the insurance premiums that their parents pay to secure that prosperity. They're quite good at begging for food, but they have no idea about the fact that a menu is prepared, that parents go and pick up groceries and bring the food back and nourishing meals are prepared for them. But as these kids mature, they will come to appreciate the complicated array of parts and pieces that have to be put together and kept together to maintain a healthy home environment. Just think of those two in that relationship with their parents. When it comes to knowing God, we are somewhat like those two children. We're slowly coming to understand all that God has put in place for us. All that He maintains, all of who He is. We cannot fully grasp it, but we keep working to that end as we mature. Let's take an example, something beyond our intuitive understanding, something beyond really our imagination and our full comprehension, but we we learn as we mature in our Christian faith to find comfort and joy in the reality that God loves God. This is not something, again, that we intuitively understand. It's not really even an easy idea to grasp, let alone to enjoy. But the Bible reveals this grand reality and as we come to maturity, we recognize that love with perfect and unceasing fullness has flowed between the members of the triune God from all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect love. Since the one triune God is perfect in Himself, And since there is no higher being than God, God would be evil not to love himself with infinite fullness. We have to contrast that with ourselves, don't we? By contrast, we are not triune beings. We aren't perfectly good. And there is a being who is higher and purer than we are. So for us to love ourselves supremely, is idolatrous corruption. It is what the Bible calls sin. It is rebellion against God in His uniqueness and in His holiness when we so love ourselves. But it is infinitely good and with infinite pleasure that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit loves God. But in our quest to know God, the question we ask sooner, and more naturally, is, does God love me? The answer is organically related to, does God love God? But God's love for us presents its own complications, far more than we may recognize. There are the ideas that these little children cannot even begin to comprehend. There are ideas that they begin to comprehend about their parents' care that they actually get wrong as they work toward getting it right. And that may be where we are when we ask the question, does God love me? It's natural for us, and we have viewed this slide not so very long ago, as a church but I think it's good for review and so fitting here in this text today we tend to answer this question along a spectrum and I would suspect that many of us here will find ourselves in this spectrum somehow if we're honest does God love me on the one end of the spectrum are people who say how could God love me I'm so unlovable I look at the things that I've done. I look at the mess I've made of my life. How could anyone love me? I don't love me. How could God love me? On the other end of the spectrum are those who would say, how could God not love me? I'm so lovable. Those steeped in Western individualism and philosophies of self-esteem, this is what you're supposed to say and what you're supposed to think. I should be loved by all and certainly by God. That's his job. To love people. And so he'll certainly love me in that process. More mediating position, leaning on the no side, is God should love me, but he does not seem to. When I look at my life, I look at the problems that I'm dealing with, I look at what's going on, I can't really imagine that God does love me. I think he should, but it just doesn't seem to work with me. And then leaning on the yes side in the middle, God might love me if I qualify myself to be loved by Him. This is the response of the religionist. The one who pursues religious ritual to strive to bring oneself into a place where God would be pleased. As we look at this spectrum... I think what we really find here is does God love me? The answer really comes from within a self determination about the answer to this important question. In the first case, the emphasis is on my sin. God does not love me because of my failures. In the second case, everything relies on my circumstances. Seems like God should love me, but these things are going on, and so I can't conclude that He does. The third relies upon my merit. I go to church. I say my prayers. I read the Bible. I try to be a good person. I am seeking to qualify for God's love by the things that I do. And in the fourth case here is my worth. I am inherently lovable. And so, of course, God loves me. The problem with this spectrum is that it's all wrong. The whole thing needs to just be blown up and thrown away. It's entirely the wrong orientation to understand even the question of whether God loves us or not. When we think of God's love from anywhere on this spectrum, we remain infantile in our knowledge of God. Does God love me? The only answer is to look away from ourselves and to look to God. To hear by faith what God Himself says and how He makes that clear. May emphasize how He makes this clear. These are responses that say this is how God makes it clear. But these are responses that come from within, that come from us. We need to listen to what God says about the matter. And this brings us back in our series to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. We come to verse 31 as we've come to the end of this book, and we read this phrase, and I want to stop on it for a little bit as we uh, look back on it and try to gain some of the context here. We've come to this question in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Clearly he's wrapping something up here. What are the things of which the Apostle Paul is seeking a proper response? I think what he's doing here is summing up Romans chapters 5 through 8. He's bracketing this section with the very same theme that he started with in chapter 5. In chapter 5 and verse 6, he's written, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God against sin. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. He started this deal. He's going to finish it. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciled to the Father by the work of the Son when we were sinful enemies. Not those qualifying for this. Not those deserving it. But those receiving it as a gift. So when Paul says in chapter 8, and verse 31. What shall we say to these things? He points to the ultimate proof of God's love for his people, built on Romans chapters 5 through 8. In these chapters, God has graciously saved sinners who break his law from the eternal judgment that we deserve. And against the opinion of most religious people, this salvation is not secured by our good works by God rewarding us for our good deeds. Rather, this salvation is based on the grace of God. This grace is extended to us in spiritual union with Jesus Christ, with the one who died to purchase our forgiveness and was raised from death for our justification, what we've read about here in chapter 5. Now notice then, and it's important to grasp this at the beginning of our understanding, at the end of this chapter, that this is addressed to people who have entered into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We see that as we look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Something's happened to the people he's addressing. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're in the circle of Jesus. You've entered into identification with Him. For the law and the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In verse 16 of chapter 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and understood contextually that is now we have become children of God. Verse 24, Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. He speaks of those who have been rescued. And then verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this chapter does not speak to the common love that God has for all people, but to a very specific kind of love That he has just for his people. Those who are saved from his wrath by placing their faith in Jesus' saving grace. God loves all, but there is a specific love for those who have responded to his saving grace that's in view here. So to such people, to his own, God reveals his love, which Paul captures in a very simple but profound relational phrase. It comes here in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? Chapters 5 through 8. What shall we say to all of this? Here it is. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's how he puts it simply. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Since God's saving grace provides all that is necessary on our side, to be saved and secured, what can possibly stand against that? Now, he's not saying that we won't face opposition. This is the Apostle Paul, after all. This man has suffered imprisonment and torture and all kinds of difficulties. He's not saying that. Who can stand against us? Who, that, that no one will ever oppose us. Certainly, he doesn't mean that. But he means ultimately. God determined from eternity past... Verses 29 and 30. He determined from eternity past to secure our salvation through the sacrifice of his beloved Son, the most costly of all gifts. If God is for us in that way, who could possibly derail his plan? Who could possibly cancel out that love? We see the declaration made there then in verse 31. And secondly, in verse 32, the display of this truth. How it's put on display for all to see. Verse 32, God is for us, so who can be against us? Verse 32, here's the display of that love. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? So, God the Father did not spare Jesus the Son. This triune God with perfect love did not withhold the Son from us. The Father delivered Jesus over to be crucified that he might suffer in our place the just judgment against our sins. Our sins. It's when we speak unkind words, when we speak cruel words, when we lie. When we steal, when we lust, when we rage with anger or seethe with bitterness, when we fail to love our enemies and we fail to love God supremely, we show ourselves to be the enemies of a holy God. That's chapter 5 and verse 8. That's what we sung about this morning. It is while we are enemies Let's say, I don't have anything against God necessarily. I don't live all that badly. But when we look at who God is as his standard of holiness, then we see ourselves to be, every day of our lives, by nature, his enemies before Christ. How does God respond to this? Those who break His law over and over again, those who never have to learn to break His law, but who naturally do so in rebellion against Him, how does God respond to such people? He loves them. He loves us. He delivers Jesus, his beloved son, to be sacrificed on a Roman cross. That's the display of his love. That's its nature. If God loved you that way, Paul is saying, what good would he possibly withhold from you? He loved you like that. How will he not love you to the end? So there's there's a message here right up front in verse 32 to those who see themselves as worthy of God's love. I'm a pretty good person, whether that's through religious ritual and effort or whether that is just simply by saying it's just who I am, I should be loved because I'm so valuable. This verse says something directly to us. It says something to you if those are thoughts that you're holding. This passage, let's remember, is dripping With blood. It is dripping with the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, dying for sinners. It's a slaughterhouse verse. That's God's response to our goodness. We don't grasp that naturally. But as we come to know our God, we recognize this. And it sets a course. There's also a a response here to those who question God's love because of the suffering in their lives. Remember the spectrum. This really crushes that spectrum on both sides of it. Because those who look to their lives and say, "I, I don't know that God would love me because of my sin. God the Father says, look there. Look on that cross and see my son. Things don't seem to be working out in my life, so I question God's love. He says, look there to that cross and see my son. Do I love you? That's the proof. That's the display. Imagine a young couple that take into their home the wife's mother because she needs constant care in her illness. And the daughter's love is so rich and full that she quits her job and loses any possibility with her employer in the future to serve as her mom's everyday caregiver. More tests are done, more things are done, and it comes out that mom needs a kidney. And the daughter says, I will donate. She goes through surgery. Her body is opened up and part is sliced off. And she goes through the pain of that and the difficulty of that to give this to her mother. And we imagine after all this takes place and mom is feeling a bit better but still being cared for by her daughter that a friend comes over and visits her and mom says, I just don't really know if my daughter loves me. Why do you say that? She doesn't make the bed the way that I want her to make it. And I have these specifications for my soup, and she doesn't follow through with it. I just don't know if she really loves me. What's a friend going to say, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Does your daughter love you? She has put her life on hold. She is caring for you every day. She's allowed her body to be opened up and sliced for you. This only begins to illustrate how we sometimes relate to God. You didn't make my soup right. You don't make my bed up the way I like it. With the little circumstances of our life that don't go well, and we look at God and question his love, and God the Father points to the cross and says, Look there. If you ever question my love, look to the cross. That's God's side of the matter. But what about those who may accuse us still? Does God's love overwhelm this? Verse 33, we see the opposition to God's love and the declaration of it and the display of it on the cross. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God's elect connects there with verses 29 and 30, those that He foreknew, those that He called Those that He predestined connects to that idea. It is gloriously true that we choose Christ as our Savior. It is most gloriously true that God sovereignly chooses us in eternity past. On the basis of His determined plan alone, He gave us to the Son who died to save us from our sins. We cannot explain this grace. We do not deserve it in any way. But the Father chose to open our blind eyes to the beauty of Jesus such that we wanted to trust Christ as our Savior. And as we think on verses 29 and 30, and we connect that here to God's elect in verse 33, to be consistent with this, it is God who justifies, not we who earn the justification. God, as the final judge of the living and the dead passes an irrevocable verdict declaring us righteous by His grace. We who once were His enemies. So Jesus takes my sin upon Himself. In return, I receive by faith His righteous standing. It's the Son who takes me to the Father. It is because of the love between Father and Son that those who are in the Son now love the Father and the Father brings them to faith. So Jesus takes our sin and returns to us His righteous standing. And this transaction forever nullifies any accusation of condemnation leveled against us. Since this is what God has done, No one can stand against us and condemn. So as verse 1 says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And no means no. None. From any place. From any opponent. And so Paul continues in verse 34. Who is to condemn then? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Paul offers this fourfold ascending chorus of evidence for God's love for His people. For the born-again believer, Jesus died in your place to rescue you from the penalty of your sin. Jesus rose, think of it, He rose from the dead to defeat sin for you, to give you life and justification. He now reigns sovereignly with authority from heaven's throne, and there... He not only reigns, but He intercedes for you. Jesus is always praying in your behalf. Link it to verse 26 in last week. As the Spirit offers unspoken groans in our behalf, so Jesus is interceding at the bar of God for you, His beloved. And there is no one in the universe that is capable of defeating our advocate before God's bar. I I really wish I could tell you this story as I got it right, but I blew it. But I was with a group of police and I talked to them about the fact that the Bible talks about your work. It is a God-ordained office. Romans 13. And there was the city attorney sitting in the room with us and he said, where does the Bible talk about lawyers? (laughs) And I blew it. So I thought, yeah, that's a good point. I guess I'm not thinking about it. I wasn't thinking. It's right here. The ultimate advocate is Jesus Christ before the throne of God. And he is your defender. Oh, I wish I'd have said that to him, but I'll say it to you. He's our defender. There is no one that beats that advocate. That is going on right now for you, believer, as the risen sun stands before the bar of God and prays for you. It's awesome. Ultimately, before the judge of the living and the dead, writes one author, Jesus is ensuring that the justifying verdict for which he died is applied to us in the judgment. No condemnation. This is a love too deep for us to fully fathom. But it is a love that is fully proven at the cross. And we look at that and our faith just continuing to be built up and to grow to say God does love us. He has made this display. No opposition can stand against our advocate. But, could it be stripped away? Could his love be lost? Paul covers that in the next section. Because that he loves me is no good if it can be stripped away. If it can be lost. We look then at the invincible permanence of God's love for His people in verses 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? These aren't theoretical aspects of suffering. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul has suffered each one of these things. Himself, personally. So Paul asserts by way of personal testimony that no trial can strip God's love from us. And he appeals then to Psalm 44 for biblical support that suffering is nothing unusual for God's people. Verse 36, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Sheep are vulnerable They're just standing there. They don't know if they're going to be slaughtered or going to be sheared or fed or destroyed by a wolf. They don't know and they can't protect themselves. We're like that, the psalmist says. We're like these sheep, always vulnerable to slaughter. In this fallen world, let's admit it, let's face it straight up, we suffer. There's problems that take place. There are difficulties that come from fallen people into our fallen world, and we suffer. That's all pretty normal. But we ask then, will any of that separate us from God's love? Will any of it strip God's love away from us? Is it possible? God's love does not deliver us from trials, clearly. Like vulnerable sheep, we could die any day. But God's love keeps us through trials. Can the agonies of life in this fallen world separate us from Christ's love? Here's the answer. Verse 37. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He who loved us, obviously, is Jesus dying on the cross. No matter the heartaches we endure in this waking world, no matter the suffering at the end of the day, because of God's love for us in Christ, we conquer all. No enemy of my body, no enemy of my soul can defeat God's eternal plan and separate me from His love. Nothing. I'm certain that we're all tempted to think otherwise at times. I certainly have been and am. We suffer and there's that haunting question in our head. Has God forgotten about me? Does He really care? When we ask such questions, they may be honest, and I think there's an appropriate way of expressing such concerns and such questions. We see that certainly in the Psalter. But let's always remember when we ask that question, does God care for me? Has He forgotten about me? That the temptation that is innate in that thinking is that my suffering is greater than God's love. My suffering has separated me from the love of God. And what God is saying to us here by the Spirit is never, ever will that happen for my people. Christian, look that trial in the eye. Look that trial in the eye that seems to say that you've been separated from the love of God and say to it, no, I have not. I've not been separated from His love. Paul does just that in verse 38. He looks it right in the eye, and he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing in the realm of life. Nothing in the realm of death. Nothing in the spirit world. Nothing in our lives right now. Nothing in our lives that will come in the future. No fears about that. Nothing in heaven. Nothing in hell. And nothing in the universe has the power to separate us From the love God has revealed to us by giving us Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Christ dying on the cross is the display and the ultimate security of God's love eternally for his people. Believer, God's love is zealous determination to pour out good upon you. His all-powerful, sovereign choice to work all things together for good in your life, verse 28. His love is a settled, never-wavering, unalterable will and desire to bless your life. His love aims to know you, to fellowship with you, to give His all for your welfare. And so it's like in a sense as we face the trials of a fallen world as all seems to fall apart around us and we begin to break down and know that our time in this world is really very brief. It's as if we're standing on a shoreline facing the ocean and we're standing there as this little puny person with a tidal wave hanging over our head and about to wash us away. We feel that way sometimes. The picture is that Jesus is there right with us. And he is saying, trust me, I've got this. Yeah, you're seeing that wall of water. And you can't stand up against it. But I've got this. Nothing will separate you from my love. Nothing ever And what Jesus knows from his standpoint, it's like we're sort of, remember the the boat that he was in with the disciples, and it almost capsized, and they were almost drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And what does he say as they as he wakes up and they bring him to see the situation? And he says, Why are you so afraid? The disciples are looking out of the boat and going, Why do you think? Look at this water. Look at this storm. We on that beach looking at this wave of water and saying, what what do you mean? That's why I'm afraid. That's why I question. But he also knows that as he stilled the sea in that boat, when we hit glory in his presence, he will still the tidal wave. It'll be flat. I've got this. I love you. I have secured you for eternity. Nothing can strip you out of my hand and separate you from my love. Nothing. I've got this. This vision of God's love for us in Christ blasts away all these faulty notions on the right side of the false spectrum that we looked at. Romans 5, 6, and 8, Christ died for the ungodly. In chapter 4, He justifies the ungodly. He shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, He died for us. 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but it's the free gift of God in which we find eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is not rewarded on the basis of our performance. It is grounded in the beauty and the fullness of God's infinite and entirely undeserved love. That's its roots. That's its basis. And for those who have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, what comfort and joy we find in this stabilizing revelation. But as we deepen in our knowledge of God's love, there is a complication. I mentioned at the beginning, and I want to sit on it just for a few moments here now. For those who know this love, for those who have come to Christ as Savior, this, His love is complicated. It has some challenges. I think it's C.S. Lewis hit on this subtly, but he grasped the point when he wrote provocatively these words, You asked... For a loving God, you have one. You asked for a loving God, you have one. What did he mean? He meant to bring to the surface this problem. The problem is that we tend to want a God who loves us with a sort of love that is like ours. We want a God who loves us So that he gives us what we want. So that he performs the way we hope he will perform. You've got the love of God. But it's the love of God. It's his love. And I wonder, would we even want a friend or a mate who loved us the way we want to be loved? Who just gave us what we wanted and always did how he asked. I don't know that we'd want a friend or a mate that way whose love never warned, never corrected, never sharpened us. The challenge for us is that the God who loves us is a holy God. And it's not possible for a holy God to want anything other than your holiness. That's where the problem comes in, the challenge, the struggle with it. So verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are part of this salvation plan, God has a purpose to work everything together for good. If we're not careful, we can jump on that and go, wow, that sounds great. Everything's going to go the way I want it to. He's a holy God. You have a God who loves you. But who is this God? Verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's where we run into the challenge. The love of God that can never be stripped away from His people, that will endure through all eternity, that has begun in eternity past, is aiming at one thing, that you would be conformed into the likeness of His Son, into the purity, and ultimately into the perfections of glory, like Jesus, the firstborn, the Supreme One. So, what does that mean? Chapter 5 and verse 3, it means we rejoice in our sufferings. Not we have a God who loves us and gives us whatever we want, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Chapter 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So 28, working all things together for good... To the end, verse 29, that we would be conformed into the likeness of Christ. And how does that happen? It happens through suffering. In large measure, it happens through suffering. God's never-ceasing, eternal, perfect love will never simply leave us alone. It will never indulge us. You want a loving God? You have one. But he is a holy God, and he will love you until he works all things, all suffering, all trials together for the good end of conforming you into the likeness of Jesus. So does God love us? Yes, on his terms. Those terms are invincible. Those terms are better and more glorious than anything we can fully comprehend, and certainly more glorious than anything we could devise. Don't think that it's less than what you want it to be, but that it's so much more. So let us take comfort in this aching world. Let us rejoice as God's little children. God's holy, invincible, eternal, determined love for us is conforming us into the likeness of Christ and is taking all the suffering of this world and using it to turn us into His image ultimately. And someday, glorified in that love before God's throne, united with Christ in the presence of the Lord, there at least we will be able to see, yes, the sufferings of our fallen lives fails to compare with the riches of glory in Christ Jesus you're separated from Christ, you say, I'm not in that circle. I'm not united with him. His death, I've heard about it. It's not personal. I haven't taken it personally. I haven't appropriated it in my life. I haven't sought it for forgiveness. I would encourage you today to come to Jesus Christ. Come to the historical realities of what he did and make them personal by faith in his work. I encourage you to come to that place today. He's not going to hit you over the head with a wand one day. And Bing, you're his child. He's going to show you what he's done, the display of his love, and he is calling upon you to embrace it by faith. To put your trust in it. To stand before that wall of judgment, that tidal wave, that tsunami of judgment making its way toward you and to say, I am not going to trust me. I'm going to trust Jesus Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. That's my advocate. If you're going to stand before that tsunami and say, I'll be my own advocate, What disaster. And I'd even ask you right now, how's that working out for you? That's a bad, bad idea. And I say that lovingly to encourage you. Trust Christ. For those of us who have, here is our joy. Here is our testimony. Nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ nothing and to this end we sing of our salvation in christ alone our father we thank you for the wonder of this message and pray that you deepen us in a knowledge of your love for us and to see your love for what it truly is not for what we might invent it to be in our small minds we ask that you would bring to saving faith those without christ And to deepen us in your love for us in Jesus, those of us who have come to embrace this good news, this gospel message. And may we now think and pray and meditate and sing in a way that reflects the gift that you've given us in Jesus, in whose name we pray.